0: Good evening, sisters, and it looks like we've got a very big crowd already pouring in, uh, very unsurprising. Hello, sisters, welcome. And today we are talking about a book called The Industrial Vagina, The Political Economy of the Global Sex Trade, that was published by Routledge in 2008 and was authored by, as it happens, the woman you can now see on your screen, Sheila Jeffries. And sisters here will already know uh, that Sheila Jeffries uh, has been a radical feminist for more than four decades. And in writing this script, actually, I sent it to Sheila beforehand and then uh, I'd accidentally put she's been a radical feminist for three decades and got it back, corrected to four. So uh, that just shows once you get to my kind of age, the decades just fly away. Uh, She's been a radical feminist for more than four decades and has published 12 books of radical feminist critique and was a professor of political science at the University of Melbourne in Australia, as sisters already will know, for more than 20 years. And in fact, Sheila was my PhD supervisor, Um, poor poor Sheila, uh, but thank you, uh, at the University of Melbourne, uh, over the years 2006 to 2010, which was precisely... The period over which uh, Sheila, well, not fully, but some part of the period over which Sheila was researching and writing and actually did publish uh, the Industrial Vagina, the Political Economy of the Global Sex Trade, in two thousand and eight. So, of course, for me today, being able to talk to Sheila about this book uh, is very interesting and has a great deal of meaning for me. Actually, Um, it had it had a big influence on my research, on me and my research at the time and actually has had so since as well. Um, You might know that actually a number of Sheila's PhD students took up themes in this book precisely, So, and I happen to be one of them. So my thesis, uh, supervised by Sheila at the University of Melbourne, looked at men's corporate business activity in Japan as it related to prostitution, and that topic of uh, men in the Um, private sector capitalist world, um, Prostituting Women, is discussed in Chapter 4 of the Industrial Vagina. And a number of years later, I wrote a book about uh, military prostitution, and that topic is picked up by Sheila in the book in Chapter 5. And then another of Sheila's students, a woman called Kay Quick, also at the university that I'm at in the same department as well, took up Sheila's marriage as trafficking theme, marriage as trafficking theme, which is covered in Chapter 2, and an earlier earlier PhD student of Sheila's researched the origins of harm reduction as an ideology. That was a fantastic thesis, and that uh, topic is also covered throughout the book. So I think um, the industrial vagina is a rare example of a discussion of globalisation and political economy as it relates to our our major concerns as radical feminists, and that is prostitution, pornography and other forms of other commercial forms of men's sexual violence. And I don't think the book has been matched since. Um, I've talked enough, so we all, we're all we all very excited to hear what, uh, Sheila Jeffery's reflections upon her book from, it's a while back now, but obviously it's still, unfortunately, very relevant. So, Sheila, just for the um, first question I'd like to ask you, uh, in the introduction to your book, uh, you note that, and I've uh, forgotten to ask Bernadette in advance to, um, put on the first slide if we possibly can, timing not very good, but here is the, the quote I was just about to read out from the introduction introduction to Sheila's book, the, the Industrial Vagina. And in the introduction, Sheila writes, prostitution has been transformed from an illegal, small-scale, largely local, socially despised form of abuse of women into a hugely profitable and either legal, or tolerated international industry. So my question to Sheila is, why did you decide to write about this transformation from small scale to industrial? And what significance did you see as it have it see it as having for women?
1: Thanks very much, Caroline. And I must say, before I begin, that it was a great pleasure, of course, to supervise you for your PhD. Absolutely fascinating. And it's a great pleasure to talk to you now about all of this. Um, And hello to everybody. Now, um, in response to your question, why did I write about this particular transformation? Well, um, men's prostitution of women has been an object of my writing and activism since the 1970s. It always seemed to be an appalling form of violence and oppression from the first time that I became a feminist, really. And I've written two books on prostitution. The first was in 1997 called The Idea of Prostitution. And that looked at how the form of this form of men's violence has been made acceptable historically. Um, how the idea that a man could require a woman through payment or by negotiation with her owner and controller uh, to get to gain the right to enter her body while she dissociated to survive, how that was made into a reasonable practice. So that was my first book. And I didn't realise that I would need to write another book, but by the early 2000s it was clear to me that there was a hugely profitable global industry that had been created out of prostitution. And I didn't know that would happen because the the objections that feminists had raised in the 1990s had led to what was called the Nordic Model. That is, laws to penalise men for buying women and uh, decriminalising and supporting the women who were prostituted. It was called the Nordic Model because it was first um, introduced in 1999 in Sweden. And these laws were spread by feminist campaigning to a number of other countries, And I think I thought that we were getting somewhere, but it was clear to me that by the early 2000s, rather than than getting somewhere on actually um, ending this practice, there's a massive industry and huge profits were being made out of it. And it was entering all the most respectable areas of society. Prostitution and its profits were everywhere. And I hadn't really expected that would happen. But basically... The, the gains that feminists made were overwhelmed by the force and variety of forms of the industry as it was industrialized and globalized. I mean, one example of that, for instance, was that in the mid 90s, uh, so-called gl- uh, gentlemen's clubs were uh, going all over the Western world, probably based on the practices in Japan and other places in Asia. Um, women uh, in Melbourne, for instance, were accommodated in dormitories at the top of these strip clubs. And their owners were very well off. They were associated with organised crime and listed as businesses on the stock exchange. This was new. It was the public... Uh, uh, Capitalised prostitution um, of women on a scale that I haven't
0: expected. Yeah, very much so. I, I think I know we talk about the global prostitution industry as being driven by organised crime and organised by organised crime, and obviously that, that is true. Um, in Australia, it's certainly the case. Um, but I think, yeah, that's your book shows in, in both respects the extent to which it's a criminal enterprise on the one hand, and on the other hand, the extent to which it's a mainstream business activity, uh, yeah, which I think is really significant um, and important for, for radical feminists to focus on. Um, in one of these uh, Radical Feminist Perspectives webinars back three months ago, if sisters can remember, I think sisters might actually remember this webinar. Um, it was back in June this year. Uh, Sheila talked about Radical Feminist Political Economy. And in that webinar, Sheila, um, you said that one of your aims in writing this book, The Industrial Vagina, was to get international relations theorists and political economy writers to begin to include prostitution and pornography in their analyses of globalisation. So you said that this hadn't ha- happened yet, actually, that they weren't talking about the sex industry when they talked about globalisation. I don't think Naomi Klein does. I don't think any of the you know big social theorist left Uh, writers do as far as I know maybe Chris Hedges is is an exception Um, but you said that on the other hand socialist and materialist feminists the French materialists for example have attempted theories of political economy but radical feminists don't seem to have a go at theorizing uh, our own particular politics take on political economy so my question to you is why do you think this is the case
1: Yes, Um, I think radical feminists haven't tended to write about political economy because we start from a different point, that is, the politics of the personal. So socialist feminists come from a socialist tradition, which is based on economic analysis, and of course, does not consider, socialists don't, feminists don't consider the personal to be political. But international economic structures and politics have not been seen as such a concern to radical feminists, for instance, as violence against women, politics of reproduction and motherhood and so on, issues which affect women's bodies, and which, of course, all have a political economy, but radical feminists haven't chosen to look at those areas of them. So there's been a sort of real gap and separation on the theorizing of economics. And as radical feminists, we've always been concerned with fighting the prostitution of women, whereas socialist feminists haven't seen prostitution as violence, as we do, but they've taken what would probably be seen as a workers' rights perspective. They support women in prostitution, they say, by seeing prostitution as ordinary work and calling it sex work and valuing what they say is women's choice to be prostituted which is, of course, really a a neoliberal perspective. It fails to see the role of men because for socialists it's capitalism and not the male sex class that is the problem. So socialist feminists concentrate on empowering women in prostitution and improving the conditions of their labor. Whereas, of course, radical feminists intend to abolish it. And we don't see prostitution as just another form of work, but a form of men's violence. It, of course, is created by women's inequality. Without women's inequality, there could not be prostitution. Um, Boys and young men are not prostituted um, as an industry, in an industry run by women for female bias. There's there's no equal opportunity. Um, It's not just another form of work because it's carried out inside women's bodies with huge harm to health. It's a form of violence which women struggle to survive. And there's no other form of work. In which the greatest profit is made from the sale of, and use of the inside of children's bodies, for instance, because the violence of breaking into them is so exciting, and of course that's fundamental internationally to prostitution. And the buying of that first breaking into a child's body is the most is worth the most money in prostitution internationally. There isn't really isn't any kind of work like that. So I thought that if I wrote a book which showed the uh, the facts about how prostitution took place internationally and as an industry, then it would help to defeat the notion that prostitution was just about women's choice and a job like any other. I wanted to show that it was a global industrialized form of violence against women and girls. And I particularly wanted my sisters who are the feminists who are teaching at universities in Australia, who taught about political economy and international feminist politics, and who never considered prostitution. I wanted them to do so. I wanted them to see how it fitted in. Um, And I wanted to show them that the sex industry was a massively important part of the international political economy with hugely harmful effects upon women. I wanted them to see that they needed to include prostitution in their analysis. Instead of, as was usually the case, seeing prostitution as just a form of work in which women could demonstrate their entrepreneurship. I wanted them to see the need to abolish prostitution rather than smarten it up with panic buttons and free coffee. It slightly worked. A couple of my sister's other feminists teaching in universities who never did anything radical feminist did say they really liked the book. I was astonished they read it, astonished they read it because I'm quite sure they never read anything else that I wrote about beauty practices and, and so on and so on. So it had a slight effect, but I wouldn't say that it had the effect that I really wanted.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, your beauty and misogyny book was also about the industry of beauty too, so it's strange to me. I have the same feelings about our social, uh, social theory uh, sisters in particular, but also all the men who are making big names in that field. It seems like an obvious object, of, yeah, an obvious, obvious in. Um, industry to incorporate in their discussion of many harmful industries <laughs> that they talk about as part of our political economy in the capitalist system, uh, but they don't. They really don't. Um, and I know sisters will know some of these details, but just to unfortunately elaborate on Sheila's astute uh, observation there that it really is about, um, you know, selling violation of girls for big money in the industry, um, sisters here will know about Jeffrey Epstein uh, and I just looked up a few details about that case because uh, I didn't know about them as well as I should have. And um, obviously we have begun to hear about the business of Epstein in terms of the trafficking of girls coming through because of uh, J.P. Morgan being sued and also the ex-Chief um, Financial Officer of the Assets Division being sued by J.P. Morgan in turn and uh as a result of these court cases, bit by bit, as of, I think it's continuing this month, I think more information's coming out by the day, Um, we get to see who, which capitalists, which male capitalists Epstein was involved with. Their names are coming up now, left, right and centre, including the co-founder of Google, including Gates, of course. And also we're bidding to see the numbers. Um, So it looks like JP Morgan was forced through the discovery process, to do an audit of all transactions uh, that they conducted on behalf of Epstein that had um, some connection to trafficking, uh, and that came up with a figure of $2 billion over 13 years. Um, now, of that, only a few million were actually, you know, so-called payments to, to the victims, not compensation payments, as in, pro- pros- you know, from his perspective, prostitution payments to these young girls. Uh, the rest of it, were revenues uh, seemingly from uh, the men he was trafficking girls to he's been sued by the virgin islands which is an american jurisdiction uh because he held, he had he had two islands within the virgin islands where he perpetrated crimes against the girls and i think is that the num, that is not being settled yet but jp morgan has already paid 290 million to victims in a a, a case A a case suit that they brought against J.P. Morgan, Deutsche Bank has already paid 190 million back in 2008, and then another 75 million to victims uh, more recently. Um, And obviously, uh, Jess Staley, who was the CEO, uh, who was the CEO of Barclays Bank, had stepped down. He was actually the, the actually the in place CEO of that bank. When this case came up, so he had actually stepped down on the basis of this um, case. Anyway, sorry for I'm throwing out uh, various facts and figures there randomly, and that's not to diminish the information about the victims actually being really harmed. It's, it's not. Um, it's just more. Yeah, obviously, it just strengthens Sheila's point in the whole book. I think that it, that it actually men capitalists men in the capitalist world are actually incorporating the trafficking of girls even. Into their daily business practice, and even the CEOs of major international banks have it as their kind of weekly enjoyment that they would have girls pimp to them. I mean, I suppose it's, I suppose we all know this in theory, theoretical terms, but it, once you start to see the profits that are made out of that um, through the Epstein case, starts to take on kind of the, the industrial vagina kind of element of the book. I think that the, the, the way that Sheila frames it, I think is really important. Anyway, that was just my Google searching for today. Um, But, uh, Benedict, if we could have the second slide, please. It's got the next quote on it. So in Chapter 2, Sheila writes that the globalisation of the sex industry means that markets in women's bodies are no longer confined within national boundaries. Trafficking, sex tourism and the mail-order bride business have ensured that women's severe inequality can be transferred beyond national boundaries. So my question to Sheila is why, Sheila, do you think this is, or what do you think is the significance of this transfer for contemporary patriarchy? Yes, thanks, Caroline. Um, Now, the way that
1: uh, people, even feminists and policymakers, tend to talk about prostitution is as if it's a cottage industry somehow that women conduct in their own homes, under their own control, in local areas. Really, that is usually what people understand when they think about prostitution. Um, This is never likely to have been a case, of course, because there have always been pimps. But what was particularly clear by the 20th century, by the 21st century, I should say, was that prostitution was very, very, very much beyond local. I described in the book what the male buyers were doing in the prostitution of women as the outsourcing of subordination, which was a way of my trying to understand what was going on here. Uh, Because um, what I understood was as women in Western countries, went to work outside the home, then they gained greater opportunities, men felt the need to bolster their superior status. This was particularly the case if these men found that women at work were their bosses, which was of course horrifying to them and really affected their status. What did they have left as men? So um, they needed to access Um, women's inequality, and they accessed the severe inequality of women in other countries through the trafficking in women, e.g. powerless and controlled women in brothels in the UK, for instance, who were mainly from Romania, or in Australia, they'd be mainly from Korea or China China or Thailand. And these women were entirely subordinate to their male buyers, who could discuss online How big their holes were and whether they were truly subordinate. Yes, online they would discuss whether the holes were flabby or whether they were, um, you know, whether they held the penis tightly and so on. So these women were just sort of cattle being trafficked around. So men managed to find poor and vulnerable women to exploit in other countries and continue to gain the boost to their male sex status, even though some women in the UK, for instance, might say no to them, and women were increasingly saying no to them. They could go on sex tours to Thailand or use exotic trafficked women in local brothels. And even more easily, uh, the Western men can buy and use women in webcam prostitution, for instance, in which teenage girls in the Philippines uh, use booths at webcam cafes to service men in Manchester or in Melbourne. So this is a truly international vicious inequality and exploitation and form of violence, which is making profits internationally. But these developments are not taken in, into account by prostitution apologists. Uh, and the the legalization of prostitution, for instance, which is legalization or decriminalization of prostitution, which makes it a regular be- business, is what the business wants. They want it to be easy to make their money and make their profits and so on. And that's promoted as for the good of the supposedly independent prostituted women and teenage girls, rather than for the pimps, the sex industrialists, organized crime groups and the customers. And I wanted to make it clear what the global sex industry now looks like. And the globalization of the sex industry means that in countries where women have more opportunities and are less susceptible to sexual exploitation, women can be imported from poorer countries to be prostituted in brothel and strip clubs and in escort prostitution. It means that men from richer countries can travel on sex tours to poor countries like Thailand and the Philippines or the Dominican Republic to buy use of women there. I went in 1995 on a, a, a trip to the Philippines organized by feminists to see how that sex tourism worked and went into the different scales of brothels. The brothels for some men were posher than brothels for other men and so on, and talked to girls who'd been working in those strip clubs from 14 years old and so on. And they talked about European men um, ha- hiring them for 24 hours and sitting outside in the tourist resort with a teenage girl on their lap for 24 hours, able to touch her and do anything that she wanted. So, of course, this is very exciting for um, the European men. Um, so there's a huge traffic internationally of the prostituted women and their buyers, and which seems mostly invisible to those who talk about sex work and choice. I mean, it's extraordinary that it's invisible because it is so huge and
0: so important, but it does seem to be invisible. Yeah, particularly in countries like Australia too, where a big proportion of the women locked into the industry are from Asia. And I think that really seems to make it a problem for local women who are, like you say, not... There are local women victims, but because they are gaining some benefit out of, or at least they're not the ones being trafficked into the local industry and therefore somehow other women being trafficked into it, especially if they're Asian women, doesn't seem to hit home as a problem in the way that the same women, actually Australia has a very strong liberal feminist um, politic, the same women are very concerned about sexual harassment in the workplace and rape, um, revenge pornography, um coercive, control, stalking. Australia has, on a weekly basis, the passing of these laws that uh, are good um, and have been lobbied for over years and years by liberal feminists, and they they just don't find in their hearts the same kind of passion when it comes to this, anything to do with the sex industry, it seems. Even I noticed uh, Melinda Tankard Rees published a book maybe last the year before last on, um, it's called He Chose Porn Over Me, from Spinifex Press, and that's about wives who have been harmed by the pornography use of their husbands in homes. And it's, ter- as everyone here can imagine, it's terrible, terrible. Um, I don't know that that's actually hit home yet with liberal feminists either in Australia, so they, I don't know what it will, it'll take for them to understand that the women in the industry are them and they are us. Yeah, it seems to be a, a bit of a, um, a wall there. Benedict, I have third slide if I can. Thank you. The next question to Sheila is about the title of her book. Thank you. Um, And I imagine, Sheila, that obviously this title that you chose for the book back in 2008, The Industrial Vagina, must have, um, I don't know how it went over with your publisher or whether it attracted attention from people around you, but um, obviously it's a good one. Uh, And in Chapter 3 you write, as on the screen here, the vagina becomes the centre of a business organised on an industrial scale, though the vagina itself is still subject to problems and in, inevitably associated with the use of the interior of a woman's body. Um, so my question to you, Sheila, is why do? You, what do you think is the significance of uh, the industry making its profits in this way?
1: Yes, well, in fact, the the title was intended to shock, and there were some feminists at the time who thought it was a rather rude title and trivialised the issue, and it was not a good title, but I did think that the title was necessary. Um, and the words industrial and vagina don't usually get go together, whereas um, most workers, for instance, use a form of machinery external to themselves, such as a computer or a lorry, but the prostituted woman and girl, her body is the industrial equipment. And I wanted to jar people into realizing that prostitution is not just sex, but industrial and harmful usage of women as objects. Um, and of course, as we know, the vagina is not an insensitive tube, but the interior of a woman's body, susceptible to serious injury, considerable pain, and many pregnancies, unwanted childbearing, and abortions. All of those things go with the industry. And to suffer a large number of filthy penises in the intimate heart of her body, a woman has to dissociate emotionally to survive, a practice which has considerable harmful effects on her own sexuality and love relationships and her feelings about herself. And, of course, that's not really necessary in doing tech work in the same way. Now, the, the book was picked for the list of best book titles for, of the year by the booksellers' magazine, so it achieved its purpose in that way. It got noticed. I don't know how many of them actually read the book, and I don't know to what extent it helped to change the way prostitution was understood, but I hope it rattled the policy debate a little and unsettled some complacencies. I also wanted to show, by use of the word industrial, That the sex industry was now carried out on a scale and with a degree of organisation and capitalisation. It was industrialised, definitely not a cottage industry, but organised to extract profits for governments as well as organised crime, many respectable industries, hotel chains, whisky companies, credit card companies and of course banks as you were talking about earlier. Um, the, The profits from this industry are now so absolutely thoroughly integrated into capitalism on a massive scale. Um, I I show in the book, for instance, that it provides between five and 14% of the GDP of some countries, but that's where they can track it to the industry. It's not covering all of the things that go with the industry, like the credit card companies, profits, and so on. Those things are not included. And if they were, then of course, it would be much bigger than that. But it's still talked about prostitution as if it's a good choice of occupation for a woman, which allows her to control her work and can be a nice little honour. And that's um, this is what people want to think. Even many feminists want to think this, and I wanted to disabuse them of this notion.
0: They they do think that. Uh, even today they continue to say it over and over, with the, particularly with the rise of that stupid internet company facilitating women's pornography slash prostitution online. I mean, yet again, we've come full circle back again to that argument about individual women making money out of prostitution. Never was true, still isn't true. Um, And also it made me, reading your book, Sheila, again, for this talk made me think about um, Japanese industrialists before in the pre-war in order to become industrialists uh, it, on a small scale, launched prostitution businesses in the the colonies or the, the occupied areas in China. At that stage, they were small. Through these brothels, they and the capital that they then invested in other businesses, and then they became kind of a bit more industri- you know, industrious in the in the mainstream sense. Um, that history is known, and I think today still we see that there's a company, there's an internet company in Japan called DMM. And that company originally was actually involved not only in the internet distribution of the main platform for the internet distribution of internet pornography in Japan, but they were originally involved also in production. Japan has a big pornography production industry and they were involved in that too. Now, then the next step was to, they got out of the production and just were in the distribution side, where, where of course that makes billions of dollars. And now they've moved out of that as well and they've got a whole raft of other businesses. I mean, that capital raised through prostituting women and making turning them into pornography online now sees that company. as this, this is a major company in Japan now, across lots of sectors. Uh, it's an industrialized, industrialist kind of company. Anyway, it's a, it's a it's an old story, and it continues today. I think. Yeah, can I just country.
1: say that? I mean, we want to get to the point, maybe. Eventually, where companies that have made their money from prostitution are seeing as at fault in the way that companies that made their money from slavery are now. And there's a big fuss about what profits made from slavery. The profits being made right now from the slavery of prostitution one day will hopefully be seen as just as unacceptable. I wanted also to say in terms of Japan having a pornography industry, I once in in Finland, I was talking at a conference on prostitution in Finland, and a, a young woman came up to tell me that she had been trafficked into pornography in Japan, and it was specifically drowning pornography. The women are drowned to make the pornography, and she thought there had been fatalities. So that was just gives you a sense of what's actually going on in pornography, the kind of degree of extraordinary violence that's taking place.
0: Yeah, that that would have absolutely been the case. Yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. Might go to, I think it might be the the next slide on the list, Bernadette, Um, if it's there. And yes, and um, so the next question was about um, throughout your book, Sheila, you refer to prostitution as a harmful cultural practice. And you note that prostitution's harms are sometimes more visible or comprehensible or more easily understood when we see them affecting traditional communities in Indigenous groups or whatever else. So you write in Chapter 2 that quote on the screen here The ability to recognize prostitution as a harmful practice has been undermined by the growth and influence of the pornography industry in Western countries. Pornography creates an acceptance that the practice of prostitution is acceptable and even enjoyed by the women who are used. It transforms traditional cultures as this Western practice creates new markets for sexual exploitation. So, I just wanted to ask Sheila why do you think women's commercial sexual exploitation as a Western phenomenon isn't more recognised or understood?
1: Yes, I I do find this puzzling because there is this assumption that prostitution has ever always accepted everywhere, and so has pornography. Well, of course, that's absolutely not the case. In many cultures, have had their own very vicious forms of the oppression of women and subordination of women, but prostitution may not have been one of them. But now it will be because of the spread of pornography and other practices of prostitution into all of those cultures. So. I, I tend to use the concept of harmful cultural practices to explain women's oppression in the West, where such things, for instance, as high heel shoes and prostitution are completely normalized and therefore seen as invisible as harm. Um, and harmful cultural practices is a, is a UN term. These are practices which harm the health of women and girls, are to the benefit of men and justified by tradition. And Of course, prostitution fits that very well here because, you know, it's always justified with being the oldest profession, which is basically saying it's a harmful cultural practice. But in many societies, these practices don't exist. Um, in some societies, for instance, prostitution was uncommon before imperial war- warfare and conquest. I know this was absolutely not the case in China or Japan, but um, there, there were places where that was the case. Um, For instance, prostitution is supposed to have been uncommon before the US took over from the Spanish and colonised the Philippines in the early 19th century. And of course now the Philippines is a world centre of prostitution. And I was surprised by that, but um, it makes sense. So the the US has been a huge promoter and creator of prostitution internationally, a massive, massive force. and in some societies, porn was uncommon until the late twentieth century. Now, and now, of course, there's an avalanche of porn coming from Western countries, and in Japan, coming from Japan. Um, so Japan and uh, China have to be understood in a slightly different way, I think, from the other some of the other countries I'm talking about here. Um, I argue in the book that prostitution has always been important to what's called development i.e. the way in which Western companies have destroyed and stolen the natural resources of poor countries. I don't know why this has not been understood or remarked upon. Probably because women do not matter. And girls and women are a natural resource which is exploited as a kind of collateral damage as development takes place. Uh, For instance, the male workers in the mines and logging in Asia are removed from their communities and provided with girls to sexual sexually used, who are enslaved and trafficked. Um, I write in the book about Papua New Guinea, for for instance, uh, where extraction of the land's actual resources by the West began early in the 20th century. And girls and women were taken to the mines to service the men. There are always sort of brothel areas, both around military camps and around mines and wherever large amounts of men are. Um, And this practice of removing the girls and taking them to the mines destroyed their families and relationships with their children and the women's health and their well-being. And it's seldom remarked upon. Similarly, forestry workers who are destroying the forests are supplied with girl children as wives at about nine years old. And when one worker leaves, the girl is often passed on. And another practice I discovered um was of girl children being delivered to boats in harbors um for ships that had come in um, on trading routes to be used by the sailors and though they would be collected and then recycled and we're talking here about very young girls often about as young as 9 years old so the There is a hugely important business of prostitution involved with practices of trade and development, which nobody is looking at. I remember at the time thinking, "Who who could talk about this? I must look and find something. And there was some report on the effect of development on women from Oxfam. And no, it wasn't there. It wasn't there. And so who can you depend upon to have some interest in defending the uh, uh, women against these terrible harms when they are actually invisible? All sorts of other harms are visible to the environment, for instance, but women are not part of, women and girls are part of the environment. They're not seen as part of the environment, but I understand women and girls to be part of the environment. I also, when I was writing this section on development, I found a material to suggest that prostitution was a crucial part of the development of Australia. For instance, girls who had been sold into prostitution at six or seven in Japan, this is the geisha system, um, would be trained in, in Singapore um, and then trafficked to mining sites in outback Australia for sexual use in the 19th century. Also, uh, Indigenous women in Australia were used in prostitution in these development sites as well, of course, but this is never mentioned. In fact, the whole way that development is talked about, it's usually a sort of triumphalist and positive history, without thinking of what happens to the societies and to the women and girls in which that development happens. And I also managed to find there's not a great deal. And you, you have to search. And I had to search about what was happening with pornography in Asia, in Pacific Islands, for instance. And I found about how pornography was often, of course, created by Western sex industrialists. In Asia, um, in Cambodia, Cambodia is one place that American sex industrialists would create pornography, really vicious pornography, because the women were particularly vulnerable. And I'm sure that is still going on. Um, And in Asia, I found that um, boy children would sit for hours in cafes using pornography. This was just an ordinary form of fun for them. And that, of course, would, and the pornography came from the West, and that would, of course, mold their attitudes to girls and women into a particularly Western kind of hatred of women rather than kinds of hatred of women that might be more new, uh, usual in their communities. So in this way, the sex industry is creating a kind of Western misogyny internationally and changing the cultures in which it's being used um now the, the pornography is certainly made by western exploiters in poor countries but also of course it's being made in japan as, as the girl the young woman i talked about earlier who was suffering um the uh, drowning pornography in japan um so i ju- i just think that there's a huge gap there why is nobody interested In all of this, it's it's impossible not to see, and hopefully, once anybody gets a bit of a sight of it, they, they will not be able to forget it, but how is it not possible to see how the millions and millions and millions of women and girls in pornography and prostitution and all the other forms of the sex industry internationally are making massive profits for their exploiters, cultures are being changed, their families and lives are being destroyed, and yet... It cannot be seen. Nobody is seeing it, and we're still supposed to think prostitution is something reasonably cuddly that happens down the road. So it it is it is extraordinary to me that it cannot be seen.
0: Exactly, and the, the enthusiasm with which Western men seem to want to evangelise their pornography also comes up a little bit. I just um, I've got a book coming out on. The New Guinea campaign of the Second World War, which was a four-year campaign where Australia, American, and Japanese men uh, fought on, in New, Papua and well, what is today Papua New Guinea. Um, and through that project, I kept finding tidbits of evidence in the archives of American and Australian s- servicemen being awfully keen to share pornography with the local indigenous local men, um, showing them. And they they show so show pornographic films or what were pornographic films for the day, um, show them on screens that they knew were visible to the local men, and the military had to keep sending out directives to the units to try and show the the films in sort of a little bit of a a corner or somewhere where they couldn't just be sort of walked past and the screens couldn't be seen. Um, yeah, there's there's evidence like that too. So it's not i mean i know a couple of sisters have mentioned in the chat too. these aid organizations that go abroad i mean to be so naive to allow western men to go as aid workers or peacekeepers or anything tourists military men anything abroad they they should be kept in their countries we should the women of those countries should be dealing with their men to try and forge better sexual politics out of them and they should not be allowed out of the borders i think because it's obvious with what's happened with Oxfam and the rest of them, that that was always going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, as you say, Sheila, the development crowd at universities, but they never took any interest in in prostitution, and that's why they they were so surprised when their their men, um, yeah, uh, did those things abroad. Um, yes, yeah, can I ju-
1: just say it there yeah, just. Yeah, um, In the papers this morning, there's a lot of material about the sexual assault of young women at universities and how horrendous it is. And one of the things that they do mention is that the young women are being strangled. That is the new thing that male students are doing to women at universities. Well, of course, this is the result of the industrial vaginas, the result of the global sex industry. And if it's doing that... To what's happening to girls at, at Oxford and it is Oxford in particular they were talking about. You can imagine what the effect is culturally everywhere else. I mean that's just one tiny insight into the effect of all of this.
0: And that's women at Oxford. I mean imagine yeah. the vulnerability of women throughout the world compared to them. <laughs> absolutely, it's absolutely. Yep. On to the next question, just because of time. But in Chapter 4, Sheila, you discussed the Western world strip club boom, the strip club boom, as evidencing an industry that has grown to, quote, help compensate men for lost privileges, which I know you you mentioned at the outset of our chat today. And now women in business have to confront, this is Sheila's quote here, women in business have to confront a new glass ceiling created by male colleagues' use of these strip clubs. End quote. So, Sheila, even recently there was a major fraud case in Melbourne perpetrated by a bunch of, you know, ostensibly regular businessmen, as in they had executive positions in mainstream business in Australia, um, that was reported in the newspaper as having been arranged by them in strip clubs. And, in fact, they made links with organized, local organised crime and the one of the deals went bad that they were trying to to create and one of them was bashed in the end by one of those collaborators from organised crime. Um, But Sheila, what do you think is the significance of strip clubs to contemporary Western patriarchy and why do liberal feminists not seem to insist upon sexual harassment as a reason to shut them down?
1: Yes. Well, in fact, I've written quite a bit about strip clubs and industry. And of course the reason we know the reason that, um, they they exist, which is that the pimp states have um, arrangements with their male citizens to service them, which is why they support the pornography industry, why they support strip clubs. And also they do have an important role in men's business practice. Um, in Australia, for instance, um, firms would give bonuses to their male workers uh, in strip clubs. They could go and spend their you know vouchers in the strip clubs and so on and they did product launches in strip clubs that was perfectly normal of course there's a bit of an obstacle and what's interesting is that a lot of people are concerned about you know the equality of women in business and opportunities well there's no way that women can have any kind of opportunities in business if the deals are made by men looking into the vaginas and anuses of women and the women are not able to do that in fact in in one of the pieces of research a woman just said that she had to chat to the the women themselves who were uh, being prostituted in the clubs because obviously there was no chance of equality there. So the hypocrisy is completely extraordinary. Whilst, um, that prostitution exists, all forms of it are used in business, and there's no possibility that women will be equal in business. I mean, obviously, there are many other ways in which women cannot be equal either, as long as prostitution exists, which is sexually, emotionally, if the men they are involved with are using pornography, using women in prostitution, there's no chance of any kind of equal relationships. So prostitution is, of course, a massive obstacle, straight across the possibility of women having any kind of equality. But it is not talked about like that. It is not talked about like that. I'm going to um, hurry on a little bit because I, I agree that um, we've, um, we haven't we have got very much
0: time. So maybe you could um, go on to the next question. Yep, Rachela. In the final chapter of the book of your Industrial Vagina, you describe the hard work and success feminists have had in campaigning against forms of male sexual violence that are not commercial. In contrast to this, you write, quote, In neoliberal times, the notion of women as part of a collective which requires rights is being overwhelmed by the idea that each woman should be able to work out an individual contract as an agent for herself in the global sex industry. This ideology, you are right, still dominates thinking on prostitution in parts of the human rights community, end quote. So, Sheila, what do you think of the current global situation? And I think sisters have been quoting the European Parliament decision in the chat. But what do you think of the current global situation in relation to the Nordic model and radical feminist possibilities of dismantling this ideology? Have things improved or declined since you wrote The Industrial Vagina?
1: Yes, this is a really important question, and I haven't been so involved in this struggle as I think you have in the, in the last little while. But as I explain in the book, there's a variety of supposedly feminist academics that choose to celebrate the agency of women and girls, How? Uh, However dire their circumstances and their lack of any meaningful choice. And I remember that a woman who taught in my university, I read a piece by her, which I talk about in the book, uh, about um, an an aid worker in a refugee camp where, of course, the prostitution of women and girls is huge, but that's not much thought about. A girl of 13, 14 years old had um, to get a piece of bread for her baby. She already had a baby, almost certainly from sexual exploitation, of course, because she's too young. Um, And she had to sexually service this man. And this academic wrote in in the book, in her article, that this was uh, an example of her agency. Even though so young, she was able to exercise her agency. Well, actually, we call it child rape. Um, or we do in other places called Chaudhry. So this is extraordinary that there is amongst liberal academics, liberal supposedly feminist academics, this is huge enthusiasm and desire to find agency in anything. Rather, They don't talk about oppression or subordination or violence. It's all uh, reconfigured into agency, even in a situation like that. Um, but you mentioned the Nordic model, and I think we should finish today by talking about the Nordic model. I was involved in the Australian branch of the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women, where I met you in 1994. (laughs) It's a long time ago now. Um, And I was involved internationally when I wrote the book. And we were campaigning to abolish prostitution, mainly through getting states to pass the Nordic model, the penalised male bias and decriminalised and supported prostituted women. And when I wrote the book, I did think progress was being made on abolishing prostitution and several more countries like Ireland and Israel did introduce abolitionist um, laws since then. Uh, But since then, there's been a big disappointment, which is in in Australia, two states, Victoria and Queensland, have liberalised their prostitution laws, enabled to create much more efficient and profitable industries. There were some some small um, limits on what they could do before, but now there's complete decriminalisation. They can do absolutely anything. It's free for all in sexual servitude in those two states. And that's a great shame after we had, both of us, so so many years, been campaigning to get something done about that towards the abolition of prostitution. Um, And there's been of course no no restrictions on pornography. Um, The photographing of acts of prostitution, because that's what it is, um, are completely acceptable really anyway. There's occasionally some small um, limits on particular kinds of violence in the pornography, but no recognition that the pornography is violence, of course. Um, so the market in women and girls from around the world is pretty much is pretty much open season, supported by all pimp states. There, I don't think there's any that actually say that you know pornography is simply not acceptable and they will prevent it. Um, there, there may be, and I would stand corrected on that. But otherwise, it's very important for. Um, pimp states, male-dominant states, to support pornography, to support their male citizens, to support masculinity and the power and the aggression of men. That's all really, really important. And they do it really, really well. So the um, the what's happened recently, though, um, is that there has been a very promising development this very week, on Thursday, in the European Parliament. A report was adopted which said that the Nordic model should be adopted by European states. And that's absolutely terrific. And it doesn't mean that they will and they don't have to, but it's a huge leap forward. Um, And in fact, we will have Luba Fine coming to talk about this on Feminist Question Time in a couple of weeks' time. Um, And it describes prostitution, the report, as gender-based violence. I hate that. What the hell is gender-based? But it does say um, that it's violence. I mean, gender is a euphemism, of course, and prostitution is male violence, and we should call it male violence. Um, But I was wondering what thoughts you had on how far we've got, what's happening in Japan and other places.
0: Thanks, Sheila. In Japan, there's been a strange turnaround. So... Japanese legislation on its surface, actually, Japan was the first country after the war to for the state to outright declare that prostitution is a harm to women, believe it or not. Uh, that's in the preface to their legislation, which is still current today. Uh, then that legislation was undermined by a number of ordinances, and then we had we have the sex industry that we have today. But Japan also had a strong abolitionist movement both before the war and after. And I know when you think of Japan, you don't think of these good f- features, but under the surface, there, there is that, there is definitely that. And as a result, I think of that history, um, a couple of things happened maybe about five years ago and an organization was formed that was extremely effective. Now at the moment, I think it's fair to say that the left or at least a, a leftist identified person cannot come out in Japan in sort of leftist circles now and say positive things about the sex industry, so legislative change has not yet happened, but it's a little bit on its way. Uh, but for, for that change to have happened in Japan is is just just so wonderful, and um, yeah, that, I mean, thanks to the sisters here, they did a lot of work to get to get that uh, change. Uh, Australia, of course, the sisters here will will know uh, we're having a little bit of success. or the sisters who are Uh, responsible for um, campaigning there endlessly, having a bit of success in the state of South Australia. So we have um, both a Labour government and a sitting Labour government and the opposition government both agreeing that the Nordic model is best. And so at the Legislative Assembly at the moment, we're down two MP votes in order to get a draft bill uh, through. Um, of course, that doesn't mean that it's yet gone through the the other house, but um, at least that's major progress. And that came about because the uh, pimp lobby in Australia uh, attempted to pass a decriminalisation bill in that state so many times that it allowed abolitionists to get into that state and to combat over years and years that, those bills and through doing therefore educate the MPs on both sides of the House uh, as to uh, the Nordic Model's um, benefits. And as a result of that education campaign, we now seem to be in a slightly winning position in South Australia, but that's the only position where we seem mm-hmm. to be a little bit uh, in a favourable position in Australia. Elsewhere is, as you said, Sheila, Queensland was a real, real disappointment, uh, is a real disappointment. It is a real disappointment as well.
1: Um, And can I say, I should mention before uh, before we go go today, uh, as Sonia Zygowski mentioned in the chat, she translated my book into German, so it is available in German. Um, and it's also available in Spanish because it was published by an Argentinian press. So that's good. And, and what I thought was interesting is it, it was first published by the Argentinian press. I thought, well, that's because in the West, um, it, 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 we cannot understand the economics of this and don't really have an, under, a, an interest in the economics. Whereas in um, Argentina, where there's probably a slightly stronger left, they do. So I was quite pleased about that um but yes fortunately this book is out in other languages but I think it's not as well known in English as I would like it to be
0: well that's a call to all of us to yeah go out read the book and also recommend it to sisters <laughs> of the liberal variety and every other variety yes, make, make uh, the book really known get it out there yeah really it's it's a and, gripping read that's the thing yes. sheila's writing as always is gripping it and, and, it's i would like it to be in french as well ah. yeah. okay. i'd like okay. it to be in japanese as well yeah.
1: well well yes beauty and isogeny yeah. now is so who knows what is possible okay, okay. i'm sorry. afraid we, prefer we are finishing slightly early
0: but almost exactly thanks to time. sheila Jeffrey. Yep, thank you very much, Sheila Jeffries. Lovely to speak to you and lovely to see all the sisters in the chat and, uh, yeah, we'll close for now and say goodbye till next time.
1: Yes, thank you. Bye
0: for now. Bye for now.